Hello, and welcome to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. I'm series producer Katie Blackley. We've had a blast making good question stories for the past few years, reporting on everything from islands and Pittsburgh's rivers to where our city's Chinatown once stood. All of our features are based on questions submitted by you, our curious listeners. I'm so glad you've joined us. After the break, we'll look at the origins of one of the city's more distinct characteristics, the Pittsburgh accent. They get that technology out here, then we're going to probably end up changing everything to LED to save on the power bills. More on this linguistic mystery just ahead. Support for the Good Question podcast is made possible by the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra, bringing great music to Pittsburgh for 126 years. Calendar of performances and ticket information is available at pittsburghsymphony.org. If you live in Pittsburgh, you've probably heard of the Pittsburgh accent. Okay, so when I walk out the door and, you know, go down the business district... Police officers could live within 25 air miles of the city-county building, which is on Grand Street downtown. The irons can take two, three days, so anywhere from 16 to 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, in fact, this is terrible to say, and I don't mean for this to come across... I hated Southside. You know why? Because it stunk down here. From recognizable Yinzer speech to the subtleties of the dialect, the cadence of the region is unique, as is the way it was developed. Scott Kiesling is a linguistics professor with the University of Pittsburgh. He's written and researched a lot about accents in western Pennsylvania and says the region really is distinct, and it's due in part to newcomers in the late 19th century. It's all those immigrants coming together, mixing up, um, learning English sort of on the street, and then that becoming the way English was spoken, because then the next generation comes and they just learn to speak that way, and that's just the way they talk. Most accents in this part of the United States come from England, Ireland, or Scotland. And Pittsburghese? Kiesling says it's mostly Scots-Irish. Words like slippy and nebby, sweeper, um, jag off, you know, you learn the insults really quickly. These words spread by association, by people just talking to each other in the streets or at work. Kiesling says that's what happened at the turn of the last century, when the city's population doubled in a couple decades. English was the dominant language when a huge wave of non-English-speaking immigrants made Pittsburgh their home, and they learned the new language from each other. All the workers are the ones who are talking to each other. These newcomers would speak their native languages at home and at their neighborhood spaces, but then they'd go to work in the mill and they'd have to speak in English. Kiesling said this resulted in some of the melding of accents that didn't really happen many other places. All of this migration kind of upset a lot of the pronunciation, and that's why Western Pennsylvania, we think, has a unique dialect as opposed to what's east and west of it. Which brings us to pronunciation. Kiesling says in his world of linguistics, Pittsburghese has been interesting to study because it doesn't quite fit into any other dialect. So, how can you tell if someone is probably from Pittsburgh? Knox is pierogi has. That's Knox, K-N-O-X, pierogi like the delicious dumpling, and house like where you live. You gotta get the O in Knox and the O in pierogi and has in house. Let's break it down a little more. Kiesling says much of the accent has to do with the treatment of vowels in the English language. Pittsburghers use a shift called monophonization. It's essentially making the words simpler for our mouths. Instead of rounding out ow and down, it takes your lips less time to form the sound ah. Compare down and don. Dantan is quicker to say than downtown. And it's the same with has, as in house. You can hear it in steel and stealers, too. 
Like here, when Pittsburgh native Joe Maganello imitated Yinzers with late-night host Seth Myers. Uh, I live up in Washington County. You're going to get Don and I uh, check out the Stiller game this uh, Sunday. They're real good this year. Kiesling says another indicator that someone is from Pittsburgh is if they drop the infinitive to be, as in my hair needs washed, instead of my hair needs to be washed. He says if they have that, plus that monophonization style, and of course if they use words like Nebby and Jagoff, it's likely they're from the Steel City. Coming up after the break. You let somebody to make that left turn right now because you know that later you're going to benefit from it. And people just learn over time and they adapt. Let's look at the rise of the Pittsburgh left. Stay with us. Get Pittsburgh news and Pittsburgh stories delivered right to your inbox every weekday morning at 7 with Inbox Edition, a newsletter from WESA. It's a quick read that brings you up to speed on the most important topics of the day. It's easy to subscribe at wesa.fm slash inbox. Welcome back. Pittsburgh is challenging to navigate. It developed from a hodgepodge of former boroughs and municipalities, and its hills and river valleys prevented planners from creating a traditional street grid. On top of that, local drivers have some idiosyncratic behaviors. Let's look into the murky history of the Pittsburgh left. A lot of good question askers want to know about the Pittsburgh left. As an immigrant to Pittsburgh from central Ohio, where it's flat and roads are perpendicular to each other, it took some time to adapt to Pittsburgh driving. If someone was going to make a left turn at the change of a stoplight, then you would let them go first so as to not hold up all the traffic behind it and then you would proceed. The Pittsburgh left-hand turn makes me feel part of the community, like neighbors are helping each other out. That was Bob Pachua, Seth Finn, and Jackie Sloganoff. The so-called Pittsburgh left they're describing is typically indicated by a wave from the driver going straight or a quick flash of the headlights. It's unclear exactly when the practice began. The earliest mention in available newspaper archives is 1985. But Alexander Stefanovich, a civil and environmental engineering professor at the University of Pittsburgh, says it probably began much earlier. As cars became more ubiquitous throughout the 20th century, dense city streets weren't prepared for the increase in traffic. And when you don't have enough capacity, that's where people are going to have to find their own ways to maximally utilize what they have. But Stefanovich says the Pittsburgh left persisted as a way for drivers to pay it forward. You let somebody to make that left turn right now because you know that later you're going to benefit from it. And people just learn over time and they adapt. I always explain the situation of, you know, it's courtesy that people are letting you go, but you have to be careful. Tim Rogers with Rogers Driving School has been teaching students about the behavior for years. There could be a car coming and you can encounter uh, that car and have an accident. After all, taking a Pittsburgh left is technically illegal. Pennsylvania law dictates left-turning drivers must yield to oncoming traffic. Jeff Schneider is a research professor at Carnegie Mellon University and helped found Uber's self-driving car division. He says the by-the-book approach is typically how self-driving vehicles are trained when they hit the roads. We wouldn't ever program our cars to do something that, you know, wasn't legally the right thing to do. These vehicles are constantly collecting data about other drivers' behavior, which is where Schneider says machine learning comes into play. Essentially, when we collect all the data from other cars driving around in the streets, Eventually, the learning algorithms will see that pattern. The city isn't as populated and congested as it used to be, so need for the Pittsburgh left has diminished. Alexander Stefanovich says even so, it's a part of the region. 
Pittsburgh left maybe as a part of the cultural heritage that this whole area has. Stefanovic says the Pittsburgh left isn't just about transportation, but about the region's cultural heritage. Up next, hope you're hungry. We're looking at how fish fries became so popular in Pittsburgh. It's a Friday evening in Swissvale, where neighbors are filing into the local fire department, stomachs grumbling. Parents usher their children toward long white tables next to big red fire trucks. People are scooping up forkfuls of pierogies and sauerkraut, passing packets of Heinz ketchup from plate to plate. It's fish fry season in Pittsburgh. But the origins of this weekly gathering puzzled two good question askers, Ben Mall and Megan Aitken. There was a time I lived in Boston for about five years, and during that time there, we could not find a fish fry anywhere. And I was wondering, why are fish fries native to Pittsburgh, and how did they come about, and why can't you find them anywhere else? I was curious to know, like, what is the history behind fish fries during Lent? And then how did it expand into, like, churches and fire departments hosting them? Okay, so we have to go back a few decades to understand why Pittsburgh became such a hotbed for fish fries. It starts with the Catholic Church. For centuries, Catholics were supposed to abstain from eating meat on Fridays as a weekly sacrifice and demonstration of their faith. Many turned to fish if it was available. In 1966, the Vatican loosened some of the meat abstention rules, which meant that many Catholics started giving up meat only on Fridays during Lent. Lent covers the 40 days before Easter and is an especially religious period for worshipers. Pittsburgh was heavily Catholic at the time, which meant that many people were eating fish on Fridays during Lent. At the same time, frozen food, including seafood, was making great advances, which meant that a city like Pittsburgh, far from the ocean, suddenly had access to frozen fish. Here's Heinz History Center senior curator Leslie Sibilic. Fish places suddenly begin to appear, like Long John Silver's, Arthur Treacher's. They're both, they both start in 1969, Red Lobster is in 68, even McDonald's filet of fish is introduced in 1962. Local grocers were getting in on the game, too. Robert Woolley's. A strip district store with a lot of seafood. I think they started selling fish in the 60s, and you begin to see in, I think it's 1963, the ads start appearing where they're running these little posts saying, hey, we now have all the equipment, you can have Woolies help you offer a fundraising fish fry. Volunteer fire departments and churches started fish fries to raise money. They caught on, and soon everyone had a favorite place to go on Fridays during Lent. It's almost like it's a competition between places, and I haven't seen that in a lot of other places. While there has been a consolidation of parishes in recent years, Pittsburgh is still a heavily Catholic place. The fish fry is a way for parishes, in effect, to compete against each other in the way that their basketball teams or football teams once did. Ultimately, Sibilic says it's about sharing a meal together. There's a sense of communal appreciation that bonds people. Good question asker Ben Hall says he loves that vibe. I like how a lot of places, uh, it's community-style seating, so you're just sitting with other people, and, and I think that's great. You just get to strike up conversations and get to meet new people in new ways. For the past two years of the pandemic, many regular fish fry locations offered takeout or drive-through distribution. But this year, more and more have carefully reopened. Back at the Swissville Fire Department fish fry, John Green says he likes to support the department and was eager to return this year. It was lovely to finally be back. Um, you know, my family hasn't been able to really celebrate since COVID and it was just nice to feel, you know, back in the same place. Fish fries aren't only found in Pittsburgh, of course. They happen all across the country and are especially popular in places like Milwaukee and upstate New York. But you might say it really hooked Pittsburgh. I know, I know, bad pun. Hope it caught your attention. 
And hope you enjoyed listening to the first episode of our Good Question podcast. If you have a favorite fish fry, let us know. We're on social media at 905WESA. Special thanks to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting. I'm Katie Blackley. Have a wonderful day, and as always, stay curious.